You're listening to a message from Every Nation GTA. For more information, please visit our website at everynationgta.org. Well, and I have to thank you as well for three weeks ago for covering such a short time when I had to miss the Sunday that I was supposed to preach this message. So we are wrapping up our series on Ecclesiastes, and we were certain that we were going to to finish on the October 8th. And well, as you're going to see, certainty is not something that we are guaranteed to have in life. Um, I had actually to spend Thanksgiving Day in the hospital because I was I had to look into a very bad pain that I had to figure out that there is something in my gallbladder. I'll have to remove it later. I started treating, but then I came back home with a souvenir and I got COVID from the hospital. And I'm just recovering it from it. I'm much much better right now, but that's why I'm wearing a mask. And if it looks like at the end of the service I'm avoiding you, it's because I'm avoiding you. But it's for your sake, okay, not mine. The only thing I want to share with you is the Word of God today, okay? I'll keep my airborne particles to myself. So, I'm very excited to finish the series, uh, this five-week series, um, on the book of Ecclesiastes. And I want to start by addressing um, something that... You know, we kind of skimmed over when we first started, and it's from the first chapter, when the teacher, and I'm going to explain who the teacher is in a second again, uh, he has this short poem about the meaninglessness of life. And in chapter one, this is what he says. These are some very famous words from the book uh, that many people know by heart. He says, what has been will be again. What has been done will be done again. There is nothing new under the sun. Is there anything of which one can say, look, This is something new. It was here already long ago. It was here before our time. And I feel like nowadays we read these words and we might shake our heads because, come on, there's a lot of things new in our world. What about smartphones and rocket ships and virtual reality and all the, you know, medical advancements that we have? How can we look at the world around us and say it hasn't been any progress? It hasn't been, uh, we haven't seen any change. Is it really that all these these things were here long ago? Of course not. There is so much novelty. And every year, something comes up that a generation ago, people thought it would be impossible to do. So is it that maybe this text is outdated? Is it something that maybe have would have worked for those people, but not for us? And there is a lot to be said about the first chapter, um, especially how this relates to some Greek philosophies going around at the time, that the teacher wanted to, to challenge. But one thing that we see all through the book is that despite all the appearances, despite all the progress, our experience as human beings in those world is, is still a lot of the same as they had back then. We chase the same things, we love the same things, we have put our hopes on the same things. We have the same faults, the same vices, the same desires, the same loves, and the same idols as they have. It's just that they manifest differently but even all the science and technology that we have today, as, as fun and as great as those things are, they are the modern manifestations of a very old idol, and an idol that is very central to the book of Ecclesiastes, and that's the idol of certainty. Our love for certainty, certainty of knowledge, of knowing exactly what the world is like, certainty about the future, of knowing what's coming and what will follow our actions, and certainty of control, that we can indeed steer life in the way that we want it to go. And the book of Ecclesiastes is not only the teacher's 
journey to find meaning in life, but it's also his search for certainty under the sun. He wants to know for sure what kind of knowledge can predict success in life. What rules, what framework of understanding the world can tell you for sure that if you do these things, then success will follow and you will be happy. Just to recap, um, if you weren't here as when we began the series, the book is pretty much a speech of someone who convened people together to share a word with them. And that word was about his own explorations, about the meaning of life. And this person called the teacher or the preacher, uh, and that's the name Ecclesiastes, this person uh, explores a lot of different things that we pursue as things that could make our life happy and fulfilling, but he limits himself to only what he sees under the sun, only to what is purely earthly. And his method is one that he only trusts his own senses. He only trusts his own experience and his own reasoning. And that's his method, his method of understanding life under the sun from an under the sun perspective. And that's how he tries to achieve certainty. So the book not only reads as an exploration of the meaning of life, but you see it's a journey in many acts of the teacher's own relationship with his idea of what wisdom is and how his ideas of wisdom changes throughout the book. So I'm going to share the book in five acts, and we'll see that what he thinks about wisdom changes as the book progresses. So let's start by chapter one, and he has this to say in verses 16 and 18. He sets out to test wisdom. I said to myself, look, I have increased in wisdom more than anyone who has ruled over Jerusalem before me. I have experienced much of wisdom and knowledge. Then I applied myself to the understanding of wisdom and also of madness and folly. But I learned that this too is a chasing after the wind. For with much wisdom comes much sorrow, the more knowledge, the more grief. So he said, I've, I've been wiser than anyone before me, and I've you know, set out to test wisdom, to see the limits, to see what it can get me in life. And he already spoils kind of where he's going to go because he finds that that was also not satisfactory. And just like him, we are also lured and attracted to these promises of certainty. That if there is a method, if there is a technique, if there is something that can guarantee us that through this method, we can be certain of the future, we can be certain of our actions, we can be certain of having control in life, then we want that. We want because life will be better if we have that certainty. You know, historically, people might have gone after, you know, magic and sorcery, astrology, necromancy, whatever, like in the occult, because sometimes those things promises, promise to, you know, read your future or guarantee that you have some success in life. And today, most people, you know, don't believe in those things, but we still love the promise of certainty. And very often, our relationship with science and technology is such of an idolatry of wanting to have certainty and control over everything in life. I mean, science is a great thing, but it easily becomes an idol when we, once we start thinking that only science can give us any worthy knowledge. Anything that we can really know about the world has to come through you know, experimentation and a laboratory. You know, it's, um, it was striking to see when we first became parents a couple of years ago, my wife and I, you know, it's only when you're about to become a parent that you start reading parenting books and blogs and YouTube videos and those things. And you see how often um, in all of those materials, if they want to, you know, get you to trust their advice on parenting, 
they will start by saying studies have shown, science has shown, and research has shown this and that. So much so that you're wondering whether you're raising a child or a science project at home, because everything is very scientific. And of course, there have been great, you know, uh, things that we can know about child, uh, uh, child health and everything. But we begin, we treat it as a science as an idol when we think that only what comes out of a laboratory I will trust when it comes to raising my child, as if there is no other uh, sources of wisdom in child rearing. That's a kind of idolatry. Another kind of idolatry that we have with these kinds of things is idolatry of data. You know, that if we measure more, if we count more, if we have more spreadsheets, more linear regressions, and more ways of knowing how numbers relate to one another, then we'll have a better knowledge and control of our lives. It's become a tyranny. I love this quote by Os Guinness, he's a Christian author and, and cultural critic. He says, Yet what we are experiencing today is a tyranny of numbers that requires a challenge because of our misplaced trust in numbers and their illusory promise of mastery and control. Just to give you an example of how far this can go, there is a worldwide community called the Quantified Self. You can Google it. Very easy to find it online, which is a community of people who measure everything about their lives from heartbeat to oxygen rates to blood levels to sleep patterns to what they eat and what they do after they eat, because they think that the more you measure, the more numbers you have on yourself, the better you will be able to live, because you will be able to optimize every little bit of your life. And we do that with everything, with ourselves and our children and our relationships and our careers. Everything becomes numbers, because numbers, they promise. They have this illusory promise of mastery and control. And again, technology, it's a great thing. I'm very thankful for it, you know. A couple of weeks ago, I was in the hospital, and I'm very thankful for all the technology that allowed me to, you know, look inside my body and see exactly what was wrong with it before I went home. And that's amazing. That's great. I'm thankful for that. But it become, technology becomes an idol itself when we think that the only solution to our problems, it's a technical solution. It has to be a method. It has to be a technique. It has to be a tool. It has to be a gadget, an instrument. And everything else is not as good as having technology to solve our problems. You know, again, parenting, it's full of techniques to optimize your children's sleeping pattern and food introduction and child development and cognitive development. There is always a technique, something that you can do that will make, that will guarantee you that your child is optimized. You know, people take medications for a problem that they don't have because it increases their performance in school. It's shown that some medication, I believe for ADHD, even if you don't have, you know, the underlying problem, it helps your concentration and improves your grades. So people take medication that they don't need because it optimizes life. And it's become so ironic how often uh, or how drawn we are to technical solutions to our problems that, you know, like we have phone apps for a lot of the things that we want to do through life, whether it's ordering food, finding our way around, talking to people, or measuring things at home, anything we have an app for. And if your problem is that you have too many apps and you use them too much, there is an app to help you use your apps less. That's how, you know, drawn we are to, if there is a problem, there must be an app. And my problem is that I have too many apps, so the solution is one more app. And it's, it's, it's funny, but it's true. There are many apps that help you use your phone less. And I'm not saying not to use them, but maybe if you delete the other apps, you know, maybe that will help you stop using or using your phone less. And I don't want to say, you know, that, 
you know, uh, science and technology is not great. You know, I, usually I don't bring up my own background when I'm talking about the Word of God because, you know, my doctorate is not in theology or anything relevant to the Word of God usually. But today I want to share that I have a PhD in mechanical engineering. I have published scientific papers. I have revealed them. I have taught at the university level. And nowadays I work creating cutting-edge technology in the aerospace industry. I love science. I love technology. It's fun. It's great. It's useful. There is so much benefit that comes out of it. But I'm very much aware that it can be an idol. It can be an obsession. And we can put too much trust in something that will fail us. And that's the thing that we also get from the book of Ecclesiastes, that any promise of certainty will fail us. So in chapter 2, the teacher... Act two, wisdom fails him. He finds out that as much as he loved pursuing it and there was so much promise at the beginning, he wasn't. It he, he didn't deliver the success that he wanted. So we read in chapter 2, verses 12 to 16. Then I turned my, turned my thoughts to consider wisdom and also madness and folly. What more can the king's successor do than what has already been done? I saw that wisdom is better than folly, just as light is better than darkness. The wise have eyes in their heads while the fool walks in darkness. But I came to realize that the same fate overtakes them both. Then I said to myself, the fate of the fool will overtake me also. What then do I gain by being wise? I said to myself, this too is meaningless. For the wise like the fool will not be long remembered. The days have already come when both have been forgotten. Like the fool, the wise too must die. So when it came to the things that mattered, even though wisdom is better than folly in many senses, it didn't deliver the promise of the happy, fulfilling life that he wanted. And I think that many of us have come to realize that our modern promises of certainty are also failing us. You know, despite all the science that, that promises to give us certainty about how the world works, we currently face a crisis of truth that we haven't seen for many generations. Misinformation, fake news, conspiracy theories, relativism of all kinds in all the spheres of life. We are not any closer to agreeing on the things that are important just because we have advanced science so much. And despite all technology, we still suffer, and sometimes even more than before. A generation ago, or two, I believe in the 70s, the leading cause of death in every or almost every U.S. state was traffic accidents. Nowadays... Most states, the leading cause of death is either suicide or overdose. And you might think, well, it's because roads got safer, and I hope they did. You know, technology around road safety has improved and car safety as well. But for some demographics, between 1990 and 2017, that's one generation, deaths of despair, which is the name given for deaths of suicide, overdose, and alcohol, have tripled in one generation. So... We have much better and much greater technology today than one generation ago. And yet, that hasn't necessarily brought better, a better life and more fulfilling and happier lives. I'm not saying that it is because science has, uh, technology has advanced. I'm not blaming it. But I'm, I'm saying it's no guarantee that they, those things will make our lives happier and better just because our technology is advanced. And of course, some might say, oh, you know, we still have these problems, all this misinformation and this despair because we still haven't got enough science and enough technology and not enough people are trusting these things yet. But the teacher is wiser than that. 
he finds out that the problem wasn't in him, the problem was in the promise. Act three, the teacher realizes he was never wise after all. He thought he was, but he never was. Chapter seven, it's when he comes to this realization. So we're reading verses 23, 24. All this I tested by wisdom and said, I am determined to be wise, but this was beyond me. Whatever exists is far off and most profound. Who can discover it? So at the beginning of the book, he says, I've tested wisdom. It's not that great. You know, it doesn't deliver out its promises. Halfway through the book, he says, you know what? I've, I've never knew what wisdom was because I was never wise in the first place. You know, I just want to give uh, open a parenthesis here because there is a, a kind of passage here that puts people off in chapter 7 and verse 28 that sounds like misogyny, sounds like the, the teacher is saying that there is no good woman in the world and some men might be good but not women. Um, and first of all, I just want to say there are many things in the book of Ecclesiastes they are not supposed to say amen to. Okay, if you want to know why, read, uh, go listen to the first sermon again. It's not a book that you're supposed to agree or quote everything in the book because it is an exploration and the teacher says a lot of things that he takes back and we're not supposed to say amen to those things. We are supposed to experience the journey and get to the conclusion that the teacher has. But some, some translations of verse 28 are really not helpful. Uh, the NIV was one, is one that doesn't help, but the ESV, um, translates verse 28 as one person among or one man among a thousand I found, but a woman among all these I have not found. What he's speaking here must be understood in the context of the book of Proverbs to which this book is a companion. Um, it has always been in the canon. In the book of Proverbs, there are two lady characters. There is Lady Folly that leads people to destruction, and there is Lady Wisdom that leads people to life. And a few verses back, he says that there is a woman, there is a lady that leads to destruction. He's speaking of the Lady Folly of the books of Pro book of Proverbs. And in the same chapter where he says, I was never wise as much as I wanted to be, he says, I couldn't find that woman. He didn't find Lady Wisdom as even though he looked everywhere for her, he couldn't find it. So again, this is just to explain that some people are being, you know, they are put off. And if, if you just read the book by itself without any any help in, in reading the book together with the book of Proverbs, then it might sound that, you know, it's some kind of misogyny that really doesn't, um, you didn't find anywhere else in the Bible. So it's not really uh, in harmony with the rest of the message of the scripture. So this is why. His, all that he's saying in that chapter 7 is this realization that I looked everywhere for wisdom. I could never find it. I wasn't wise after all. I wasn't. And, you know, I think this is a realization that we come often as well in our day and age um, because the certainty of science as the way to knowledge, as the, as the way to every knowledge that we can have and knowledge of every area of life, it's being debunked as well. There are, we now know and we have a lot of uh, good reasons to believe that science is not as objective, as neutral as it promised to be. It's not the only way to knowledge and it's not as good as it promised to be. And our certainty that we can have control over life to make it better also is being debunked because we see that technology might have, might have given us more power but in the fight of good against evil, it hasn't tipped the balance towards good. We have just as much evil as we have good, maybe even before we, you know, had all these technological advancements. 
And I just want to open another parenthesis here because I know that this sounds a lot like science denial, okay? And there has a lot of that going around these days, especially around like climate change and vaccine safety and a lot of things. And it's usually go hand in hand with political polarization. And I just want to say that political polarization and science denial is also a symptom of our idolatry of certainty. Because these things promise to make the world that is a very complex and messy thing into a very easy to understand and interpret uh, world that we can easily say who are the good people, the bad people to make sure that we are with the good ones and so we can navigate with certainty. You know, I'm going to call you know things out here, but we see a lot on the right spectrum of politics, a lot of science denial and conspiracy theories because they promise certainty of who's who, what, how the world works, and who are you in this world. So to make sure that you know how to navigate, they oversimplify everything because we, ha we crave that simplification. The world is a messy place and we want to be certain that we are, we are one of the good guys. We want to be certain of what we should do next. And it's not only the right, the left has its own theories. They're usually more academic sounding, but they tend to explain the entire world as struggles for power and as systems of oppression. It's very easy, again, to tell who's who, who the good guys and the bad guys are, because you split all of society into those who oppress and those who are oppressed. And not to say that there, are, there is no oppression and there is no struggles for power, but when you say that that's the one thing that explains everything, every human affair, every human relationship, again, it's an oversimplification. That helps you over, that helps you simplify a complex world. There is a, I think, a very important quote from a, philo a, a Christian philosopher, Jacques Ellul, and he says about all these theories, whether they are conspiracy theories, academic theories, anything that tends to oversimplify the world, he says, these things enable everyone to avoid the trouble of thinking for themselves. And this is important, the worry of doubt, the questioning, the uncertainty of understanding and the torture of a bad conscience. So people go for these either conspiracy theories or you know the, the, the academic theories that promise to explain the world and make it simple to navigate, not only out of intellectual laziness, like, oh, I don't want to think, so you know, just tell me how the world is like, but because we hate the uncertainty. We hate not knowing whether we are one of the good people, how we should navigate this. And the world is ever more complex, ever more messy. It's ever harder to make sure, you know, who's good and who's not in this world. And we want to be one of the good guys. We want to be one of the good people. So we tend to flock around these polariz polarized ideas and tend to go all the way into the left or all the way into the right because it simplifies and it promises certainty. So just as science and technology are idols of certainty, so are these oversimplifications of the world. And this is where the teacher invites us to take a very important aspect, especially if you're drawn towards, you know, seeking these certainties and um, finding, you know, comfort and hope in those. Act four, the teacher realizes certainty is impossible. It's not only that his method fail, but every method would. Every method would because certainty in this world is impossible. Chapter eight, after he realizes he was never wise, he realizes that no one can have the kind of wisdom that he desired. We read in verses 16 and 17. When I applied my heart to know wisdom and to see the business that is done on earth, how neither day nor night do one's eyes 
see slip, sleep. Then I saw all the work of God, that men cannot find out the work that is done under the sun. However much men may toil in seeking, he will not find it out. And even though a wise man claims to know, he cannot find it out. The world will never be as simple and as explainable as we want the world to be. We can never navigate the world with certainty that now we know exactly who's who and what is what and what's behind everything. So beware of all those promises, whether it's science, whether it's a conspiracy theory, whether it's a philosophy, be wary, be weary of, you know, um, any promise of making matters simple. So how should, how can we live wisely if we can't have certainty? Are we left to be just skeptics and cynics for the rest of our lives? This is where a lot of deconstruction stops, right? You, you've been duped once. Now we are not, never going to be duped again. So you're going to doubt everything. You're never going to trust anything anymore. So, you know, it's, you just feel defeated. Like there is nothing I can do. I'll be, I'll be a passenger in life because I cannot explain it anyways. But there is one more act in the book. And this is a very important conclusion that the teacher comes to. He finds out that wisdom begins with trust, not certainty. Wisdom is possible even if certainty is not, because wisdom begins with trust and not with certainty. Chapter 11, one of the last chapters of the book, in verses 1 to 5, the teacher says, Cast your bread upon the waters, for you will find it after many days. Give a portion to seven or even to eight, for you know not what disaster may happen on earth. If the clouds are full of rain, they empty themselves on the earth. And if a tree falls to the south or to the north in the place where the tree falls, there it will lie. He who observes the wind, you know, trying to predict what's coming, will not sow. And he who regards the clouds, worried of what's coming, will not reap. As you do not know the way the spirit comes to the bones in the womb of a woman with child, so you do not know the work of God who makes everything. You will never understand all, as, good, as well as you want to, but you don't have to. You can walk in trust. Why? Because God made everything. Because he is in, in the control of everything, of the world, and of nature, and of the governments, and of the human affairs. He is in control. You don't have to understand it all. You don't have to predict it all. You don't have to control it all because you never will. But there is still a way to live wisely. And that begins with trust. The book of Ecclesiastes ends where the book of Proverbs begins. The main trust, the main idea of the book of Proverbs is that wisdom begins with the fear of the Lord. It's by considering him, remembering him, understanding who he is as our creator and as our judge that we can have wisdom. The way to wisdom is not autonomy. I'm not only going to trust myself. The way to wisdom is trusting who is trustworthy. And there is one that is more trustworthy than we, and that is the God who made everything. It's not a kind of blind faith, you know, the faith that we spend our entire lives in the dark, just taking step after step out of, of faith. It is faith that leads to understanding. God doesn't want us to stay in the darkness, but he wants us to begin with trust. There is a very um, famous phrase from a medieval monk and philosopher, Anselm. He says, I don't seek to understand in order to believe, but I believe in order to understand. I'll say it again. I don't seek to understand in order to believe, but I believe 
in order to understand us. As one of my favorite bands sing, believing is seeing and not the other way around. Good luck finding those lyrics online. But I think it's very important to understand that it's not you just believe and you never understand, but it's belief that leads to understanding, leads to our eyes being opening, opened. It's not the God of the gaps hypothesis. You know, like first we understand everything that we can on our own and the things that we can't explain, then we, you know, we summon God to explain those things. Oh, it must be God. No, it is understanding everything starting with our trust in God. I wish I had the time today, but that would take at least another hour or so to explain, you know, that how science needs several assumptions about how the world is and how we are in the world for science to work, for science to be trustworthy. And none of those assumptions can be proved by science. Science cannot prove that it itself works. There are many things, you know, it would go deep into philosophy of science here. But I just want to tell you that all those things are very, all those assumptions about how the world is, is very much at home with someone who believes in God and in a God that created everything. If you don't believe in God, you have to take steps of blind faith for you to trust in science. If you trust that God made the world, then you can have a lot of fun with it and trust it. So, you know, some people have asked me uh, a few times throughout the years, you know, seeing how much involved I am with science, um, how can you reconcile science and faith? And to me, there is no conflict. If I didn't have faith in God, I wouldn't have faith in science. The, way, the, the reason why I love it and I pursue it and I think it's worth pursuing and I encourage people to pursue a career of science if you like it, it's because I trust God first. It is by believing that I first understand how science can work in the first place and how it is a good thing for us to pursue. And I think this is an important step in our de deconstruction because, again, as I said, if we feel like we've been duped and we started deconstructing our beliefs, you know, uh, our beliefs of faith, our beliefs about the world, our beliefs about politics, we feel like I've been duped by people. I'm not never going to be duped again. I'm going to uh, not trust anything again. I'm not going to trust anyone again, only myself. That's a deconstruction that ends in destruction, but we are being invited to construct a new kind of faith that it begins in a new kind of knowledge that begins in trust. And Richard shared the quote, um, I think in our second sermon of the series, and I want to bring it back because I think it just explains it so well. It's about the philosopher Paul Ricoeur, French philosopher, and he says, um, the philosopher Paul Ricoeur coined the phrase second naivete that is appropriate. There is a childish and critical naivete, Ricoeur says, that we need to outgrow. To move beyond it, we must question our assumptions, decide, dissect them, take them apart. In doing so, we realize how naive, naive we were and how complex things are. But the purpose of this deconstruction stage is not to leave us tentative and unsure about everything. Ultimately, it should lead to a second naivete, which is an understanding arrived at on the far side of complexity, which is truly childlike as opposed to childish. So to trust God, it's to be childlike, but not childish. It doesn't mean that I'm, you know, I can, you know, it's just being naive, not wanting to see the world, not trying to understand the world. And like, I'm just going to abandon any attempt of understanding it. I'm just going to take steps of faith. Now it's childlike because we know God. 
We know who he is. And even though the world is complex, it's still under God's control. And we can trust him even when we don't understand the world. We don't have to oversimplify things. We don't have to fall for these empty promises of, you know, explaining everything to us. We don't have to put our, all our hopes into knowing science and knowing technology to get us out of our troubles. We can do those things and we can pursue knowledge because we are not dependent on being certain of things, because we trust God instead. And we have so much more reason to trust God than the preacher had, the teacher had in the book of Ecclesiastes, because we know God better than ever, because we've met Jesus Christ. He didn't. He didn't know back then the extent to God was going to go to save us. The extent of his love, the extent of the sacrifice that he was willing to pay to save us, to redeem us. We have a lot more reason than him to abandon ourselves to this God because we know that he's good and that he will do everything that is necessary for us to have all that we need. We know God's plans, we know his power and his kindness to us better than anyone else. So let me ask you today, what is the bread that God is asking you to cast upon the waters? What is the thing that he's asking you to do? And you know that he has been asking you to take a step. And you've been paralyzed of fear. You've been paralyzed because you don't know what's coming. You don't know what the future is like. You don't understand the world as much as you want to. And so it's been hard to take that step of to cast your bread. And God is calling you to trust him. So what is that bread that God is asking you to cast and trust that will come back to you when you need it? And what fears about the future and what fears of uncertainty, of lack of control, of lack of knowledge, of lack of preparation is paralyzing you to take that step that God is asking you to do? Those are very important questions that I hope you consider it today. And if you've been chasing certainties in life to take that step, I would say take a step of trust and see how God will take care of you. So this is a great time for us to look back at the series. Very quick look back at the series. We started by deconstructing meaning, the meaning of life. Then we looked at meaningful work. We looked at the question of whether we get what we deserve in life. We looked at the importance or the non-importance of chasing life experiences to make it fulfilling. And today, at the possibility or impossibility of certainty. There is a lot more to the book. A lot more to the book. We had planned other things. We didn't have time to, to get everything in the series. There is a lot more that is worth discussing in this book. So I hope that this series has challenged you, you know, where the book is supposed to challenge us, but also encourage you to read this book for, for yourself. It takes about 30 minutes to read it, and I hope it has equipped you to read the book boldly and with humility, knowing that you will be challenged and maybe your life will be asked to be changed. And if you're shaken, you know, if in the sense of some of your assumptions have been shaken, some of your assumptions have been challenged, and... You don't know, you know, what to do next. Take a step of faith and answer his call. Begin living to the true story of who you are in relationship to God and build your life in Christ because he's the only hope that does not deceive. There's one thing that Christ said that I think is the best summary of the wisdom of the book of Ecclesiastes. And I hope this will um, make sense now as we reach the end of the series. In Matthew 6, these words of Jesus are recorded. But seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness, and all these things will be added to you. 
We've looked at meaning and work and merit and experience and certainty. And these are all things that if you chase them, you will never get them. But as you chase God, he will give them to you. He will give you the meaningful work, the experiences that you need to make your life fulfilling, better things than you deserve, a meaning that cannot be shaken, and all the knowledge that you need to take the next step today, and then the one tomorrow, and the one the day after. But only as we seek him first, as we start with him, as we abandon ourselves to his will and live out of obedience. It's his will, it's his kingdom, and it's obedience, it's his righteousness that we need to seek. And all these things will be added to us as long as we don't pursue them for their own sake. Amen? So let's pray and uh, wrap the series this way. Lord, we thank you. We thank you for such a challenging book that you've added to your scriptures, Lord, to help us shake any lies, any false hopes that we might have built our lives upon. We pray, Lord, that you give us the boldness, the courage to abandon these things and start anew with you, to pursue, Lord, your will as we've never done before, so that we can see your power and your kindness being true in our lives. So we pray, Lord, that we see you come through and give us the, the work and the certainties that we need, only the ones that we need, Lord, and the life experiences that you have saved for us. And the meaning, Lord, that will never be shaking. It doesn't matter what happens in life. We pray that you will give us those things as we pursue you, Lord. So all that we ask is that you help us take the next step that you're calling us to take. That we follow you obediently on what we are supposed to do today. And that tomorrow you will give us another light for tomorrow. And another step to take. And again, another light and another step to take the day after. So that step by step, Lord, we get closer to you. We get closer to being the persons you made us to be. And we may experience your goodness, Lord, today and forevermore with you. In the name of Jesus, we pray. Amen. You've been listening to a message from Every Nation GTA. Thanks for joining us. For more information, visit our website at everynationgta.org.